we asked for a volunteer to see if they could recite Hebrews 11, uh, 1 to 3. Now we're up to 1 to 6. And we need somebody besides Elise or Steve this week. So, so does anybody want to edify their brothers and sisters by taking an attempt? My daughter asked me, why don't I do it? And I actually said, I would be really nervous to do it. Um, so is anybody willing to, to try? We got someone? Dave, are you ready? You gonna? All right, come on. We're with you. NIV version. Uh, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Uh, by faith, uh, we understand that the uh, universe was formed at God's command, so what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life before he experienced death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before, um, before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For anyone who comes to him must believe he exists, and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Amen. Amen. All right, so let that be an encouragement to us to keep working on, uh, we're trying to memorize Hebrews 11 this summer, uh, individuals, families, and it's some work, and, uh, but I think it's rewarding. Let me pray for us, and we'll look at this text together. Father, we ask that you would, by faith, open our eyes Give us the faith that we need to believe that the world, the new world that's breaking in is so much better than this world that's passing away. May we see that this world is, is not our home. May we seek the city that is to come. And we pray that, Lord, you would reward your people for finding their treasures in you and not in this world. Speak now to us, we pray, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 2010, the big book that kind of hit the Christian market was the book Radical by David Platt. It's a good book, and I don't want to belittle the book in any way, and I think there's many good and challenging things that he was saying to the church. Uh, but the difficulty is, is how long can you sustain this radical life? Because in 2014, Michael Scott Horton wrote the book, Ordinary, Sustaining Faith in a Radical, Restless World, an obvious response to radical. And the reality is you need both. And the difficulty is, is that um, it's kind of like which direction is the ship moving and what are the waves coming towards you? You know, I can remember when I was in college and being on a whitewater raft 
and we were heading the wrong direction. We're heading right for this huge boulder. And all the people on my side of the boat jumped to the other side of the boat. Well, guess what happens if you do not intentionally get on the side that's heading for the boulder? If everybody jumps over here and we hit the boulder, we're flipping. So I had to jump and get over into the boulder. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna flip. So what David Pallison talks about in his new little book, Sanctification, which is on the book table, he talks about in counseling, you have to unbalance truth. Unbalanced truth to hit people with what's relevant to them. And how Jesus, in, in his counseling, it's always different. When you read the Gospels, it's unbalanced truth. Meaning it wouldn't be the same thing in every single context. But because the church was out on this limb and heading off a wave of radical, where everything has to be dynamic, radical, life-changing, nothing like it, can't miss it, best ever, extraordinary. I mean, after a while, as a pastor, it gets exhausting. How do I do the best ever sermon every single week? How can I be more dynamic? How can I tell everybody you can't miss this? This is the best ever. This is the greatest. You got to be here. Can't miss it. And eventually, God's people, what happens? You get exhausted. Not every Christian is meant to be a thoroughbred. There are some thoroughbreds out there. But what about the workhorses and the regular horses? It's okay to be a regular horse. Now, we do need thoroughbreds, and God has called different people to different things. But Horton begins his book by saying this. He says, ordinary has to be one of the loneliest words in our vocabulary today. Who wants a bumper sticker that announces to the neighborhood, my child is an ordinary student at Bumbling Brook Elementary? Who wants to be that ordinary person who lives in an ordinary town, is a member of an ordinary church, has ordinary friends, and works an ordinary job? Our life has to count. We've got to leave our mark, have a legacy, make a difference. But he goes on to caution of those who always have an itch for having to do something big for God. Changing the world can be a way of actually avoiding the opportunities we have every day. Right where God has placed us to glorify and enjoy him and enrich the lives of others. And then he quotes from this blog post of a lady named Tish Harrison Warren. And she's got a pretty funny blog entry where she talks about, you know, how she was this radical who went off to, to Africa and was a missionary, and then she comes back and she meets the new pastor for the first time and says, oh, you're the radical person who, you know, has gone off to do these things, and then she basically starts to date a guy who's not very radical, you know, because he's just, you know, he's an accountant, you know, he's just a normal guy, and she's not really understanding, you know, her place in this world as she comes back to the States, and, and then she says in her blog, she says, now I'm a 30-something, with two kids living a more or less ordinary life. And what I'm slowly realizing is that for me, being in the house all day with a baby and a two-year-old is a lot more scary and a lot harder than being in a war-turned African village. What I need courage for is the ordinary, the daily everydayness of life. Caring for a homeless kid is a lot more thrilling to me than listening well to the people in my home. Giving away clothes and seeking out edgy Christian communities requires less of me than being kind to my husband on the average Wednesday morning or calling my mother back when I don't feel like it. She goes on to reflect how in college we were told over and over again that we were to be world changers. We were to be challenged to impact and serve the world in radical ways, but we never learned how to be an average person living an average life 
in a beautiful way. She says, everybody wants a revolution, but nobody wants to do the dishes. My life is really, and then she says, my life is really rich in dirty dishes and diapers these days and really short in revolution, revolutions. But I've come to the point where I'm not sure anymore just what God counts as radical. And I suspect that for me, getting up and doing the dishes when I'm short on sleep and patience is far more costly and necessitates more of a revolution in my heart than some of the more outwardly risky ways I've lived in the past. I'm starting to learn that whether in Mongolia or Tennessee, the kind of giving my life away that counts starts with how I get up on a Tuesday morning. It's, it never sells books. It won't be remembered, but it, it's what makes a life. And who knows, maybe at the end of days, a hurried prayer for an enemy, a passing kindness to a neighbor, neighbor and a budget planning meeting on a boring Thursday, and our planning meetings or business meetings are Thursday for the budget, will be revolutionary stories of God making all things new. So here we come to Hebrews 11 this morning. And the chapter ends with radical. We got people who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, have stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. That sounds pretty radical, doesn't it? But how does the chapter begin? It starts off rather ordinary. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. He was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as being, as having pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he's a reward, he rewards those who seek him. So we're looking at Enoch and Abel, and both of their lives are rather ordinary, and they're, it's interesting, they're both incomplete, or they're, they're short lives. We don't know how old Enoch was when he was taken, but we know that, that Abel's the first uh, murder in the Bible, first death in the Bible by murder. But they're both commended because of their faith. Abel was commended as being righteous by faith, and Enoch is commended as having pleased God by faith. Abel's an example of faith in his worship. Enoch is an example of his faith in his walking with God. So the title of the message is Worshiping and Walking by Faith. There isn't anything really radical. Enoch walked with God. God took him. He lived an ordinary life. Nothing is mentioned that he did. He walked with God, and the Septuagint translates that as Enoch pleased God. Now, all of life is to be lived by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And whatever is not of faith, we're told in Romans 14, is sin. Therefore, you can't worship or walk with God or please God without faith. But what does that mean? Well, let's back up. And let's look at the overlooked part of the passage. Our youth pastor in our staff meeting this week said, we were looking at verses 13 to 16 in, in uh, Hebrews 11, and he said there's, there's, there's a word that unlocks the whole thing. 
We all had to kind of look and see what is the word that unlocks, you know, what does it mean to be living for the world to come? And, and the answer was they desire the word longing in the NIV. Well, I would say the same thing here, Bruce. In verses four to six, there are two words that unlock this passage. And it's not the two words that you would think because I overlooked these words all week. The words you naturally want to gravitate to are commended and pleasing God because those are the words that are repeated. But actually, when you look at the, ver- at the verse again, if you look at verse 6, it says, without faith it's impossible to please him. Right? And he says, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. But notice what there has to be this desire. Do you really want to draw near to God this morning? If you want to please him by faith, that's kind of the prerequisite. Do you want to draw near to God? Do you seek him? Honestly. I mean, imagine this week, I mean, Big 100 played the Joshua Tree, the whole album this week. I mean, for those who couldn't go to the concert, like me, that's poor, but it took me right back to the 80s, right in high school. I'm like, man, I wish I could have been there this week, right? In the stadium. Imagine if somebody came to you and you're an 80s rocker, which most of you are looking at me like I'm crazy. You guys know you too was in concert this week, right? In DC. Okay. All right. So imagine somebody comes to you, Kim, and says, you can sit anywhere you want in the stadium. Where would you want to sit to, to this concert, Pat? Where would you want to sit? You want to be as close as you can possibly be. You want to draw near. You want to take it all in. I want to be as close as I can possibly get if if money's no object. Well, God says here, where do you want to be this morning? God is here. How close do you want to be, honestly? Do you want to be as close as you can possibly get? Or do you realistically, do you want to be as far away as you can possibly be but still make it into the stadium? Be honest. Do you believe God rewards those who seek him or he removes those who seek him? Be honest. Because reformed people are more scared. We were so big into the holiness of God, we're kind of scared to get close. And the whole point of the book of Hebrews is it keeps repeating this emphasis about drawing near to God. This is the sixth time that we're, talk to, talk, we're told about drawing near to God. And he rewards those who seek him. But they come by faith. And so we do not want to sit in the nosebleed section and be far off. We want to draw near. You remember C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair, and the classic illustration where Jill is wrestling with this. She's thirsty. She's dying for a drink. But she sees Aslan, the lion, and she's afraid. C.S. Lewis describes it like this. The wood was so still that it was, it was difficult to decide where the sound was coming from. It grew clearer every moment, and sooner than she expected, she came to an open glade. She saw the stream. Remember, she's, she's lost. She's self-alone. She's, she's separated. She's very thirsty, but she sees the stream, bright as glass, running across the turf, a stone's throw away from her. But all this, though the sight of water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward to drink. 
She stood as still as if she had been turned to stone with her mouth wide open, and she had a very good reason. Just on the other side of the stream lay the lion. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours, and the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she would be sure of getting a a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, if you're thirsty, come and drink. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy golden voice. Are you thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Do you eat girls, she asked fearfully. I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you'll die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step, dear. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that, and her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever, she'd ever had to do. She went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. It seemed to her like the worst thing, and it was the best thing, faith. We sing a lot here this song called Satisfied. That first verse just says, all my life long, I've panted for a drink from some cool spring that I hope would quench the burning of the thirst I felt within. Hallelujah. He has found me. The one my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies all my longings. Through his blood, I now am saved. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. There is no other fountain where God will save you from your sin and satisfy you with himself. There's no other fountain. Do you want to draw near to God this morning? Are you seeking him? What are you seeking? You see, that's the prerequisite, and it leads naturally to the how question. Well, then how do we draw near to God? How do we seek him? How do we approach a pure and holy God who's a consuming fire in our shame and our filth? We all have it. Cain and Abel answered this question in two completely different ways. The one offering was accepted and the other offering was rejected. Cain's belief was that God can be worshipped however you want. Bring whatever you want. God's not all that special and he should be happy with whatever you bring. I would just describe it as, as show and tell. It's a show and tell for Cain. You ever do show and tell when you, when you were a kid in elementary school and they say, okay, tomorrow show and tell. Bring whatever you want. There is no wrong answer. You bring and you show and you tell about whatever you bring. That was what Cain did. He did a show and tell. Look, Abel, look what I brought. Look, God, here's what I brought. It was show and tell. It didn't matter. He was a minimalist. His attitude was that it's good enough and his offering was good enough. He didn't really want, he didn't want intimacy with God. He wanted God to leave him alone. And he was rather indifferent with his offering, going through the motions. 
He doesn't need a bloody sacrifice. You see, Cain thought God was harsh and mean, and he hated his brother. And he was jealous that God accepted Abel's sacrifice. And it's interesting, their names, actually. Cain means my possession. I mean, Eve was promised, you know, this one's going to come from you, is going to crush the serpent's head. So she has a child, and she said, this is it. This is Cain. This is, I mean, this is, I have gotten a child, my possession. This is it. And then she has the next child, and she names him Hevel, which is how the bird of Ecclesiastes begins. Meaningless, meaningless. How would you like to be named Abel? I mean, what a, what a bummer of a name, you know? Your name means ah, you're useless. No. So Cain is, is kind of like this trumped up, I'm the possession, I'm the, and poor Abel, poor guy got a bummer of a name. Um, so Cain looked down on his brother, yet his brother brings a different sacrifice. And so I want you to think about this morning, what, what are you bringing to God? Do you come however you want? Do you think that God has a standard for how he's to be worshipped? Can you just come through whoever you want? Or is there standards? There was once a guy, I remember witnessing to a guy once, and I asked him, if you were to die right now and stand before God, and he was to say, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say to him? And he said, I'd say, let me in. Man, I have never, ever heard anybody give a response like that. I mean, it just really took me back. I'd say, let me in. And it was nothing about Jesus or the blood or I'm a sinner, I need your grace. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I'm only coming by him. I mean, none of that. It was just, let me in. That's Cain. This is how I'm coming. Now, I want you to see that Abel comes through this sacrifice he comes bringing an offering and he offers a animal sacrifice through blood. And so I'm reminded of another C.S. Lewis illustration here of kind of two different ways to approach God. And it's in this from the, the book, Great Divorce. And the book's about a busload from he- of people from hell who are ghosts. And if you've read it, it's kind of weird. And, but they're, they're coming to the outskirts of heaven and the bright men from heaven come out to try to convince the ghosts from hell to come in. And in this conversation, a ghost recognizes a bright man who he knew in life, and the man was actually a murderer. Yet he's in heaven, the murderer, and here's this ghost who's this moral guy, very upstanding moral guy, and now he's in hell and can't get in heaven. So to hear intense the conversation, think about the paradigm going on here. So the ghost says, look at me now. He's slapping his chest, but the, the slap made no sound. I've gone straight all my life. I don't say I have no faults, far from it, but I've done my best all my life, see? I've done my best by everyone. That's the sort of chap I was. I never asked for anything that wasn't mine by rights, and if I wanted a drink, I paid for it, see? And I, if I took my wages, I've done my job. See, that's the sort of man I was, the right man. It would be much better if you didn't talk like that. You're never going to get there like that. Who are you talking about? I'm not going on. I'm not arguing. I'm just asking for nothing but my rights. I just want to have my rights, same as you, see? Right, man. It's not as bad as that. I never got my rights, and you won't get your rights either. You'll get something so much better. That's just what I mean, says the ghost. I haven't got my rights. I've always done my best. I've never done anything wrong. And here's the thing. Well, if if you don't mind me saying that, here's the thing I wonder about. Why should I be put down there below a bloody murderer like you? What's a murderer doing up there, and what is a sort of me doing down there? 
Well, I don't know where you'll be put. Just be happy and come. What do you keep on arguing, says the ghost. I only want my rights. I'm only asking, I'm not asking for anyone's bleeding charity. Oh, then do, said the bright man at once. Ask for the bleeding charity. Everything is here for the asking, and absolutely nothing can be bought. That may be all right for you, says the ghost, if they choose to let a bloody murderer and just because he makes a poor mouth at the last minute, that, that's their lookout. I don't want charity, though. I'm a decent man, and, I've, and if I had my rights, I'd have been there long ago, and you can tell them I said so. That's what I'll do. I'm going home. I didn't come here to be treated like a dog. I'll go home, damn, and blast the whole pack of you. And still grumbling but whimpering a little bit as it picked its way over the sharp grasses, it left. Lewis is showing us how we want to come to God on, on our own terms, our own covenant, and we don't want any bleeding charity. Yet God has made it clear that the cross is the intersection. The cross 2,000 years ago is the intersection that we must come to. It's the only way that we draw near to God. It's the great intersection. Have you come through the cross to Jesus Christ, to God the Father? Have you come? Have you ever wondered what made Abel's sacrifice better than Cain's? Why did God accept Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's? The Bible tells us this, that Abel brought the best of the flock, the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Abel gave God his best, the pick of the flock, and then he offered up the best portion to God. The difference, I think, between their Abel, Cain and Abel's worship was, first of all, a heart choice, Abel's choice was a reflection of his faith in God, that he knew who God was, that he exists, that he rewards those who seek him, and Abel believed God, and out of faith brought God the best that he had for an offering. But there's others that have also made a big deal, that Abel knew that he had to bring a blood sacrifice for an offering. And that's why God accepted his offering, because he knew that the shedding of blood was required to be in a right relationship with God. You say, well, how would he have known that? Well, A.W. Pink in his commentary on Genesis says that when God clothed Adam and Eve in the chapter before with animal skins after they sinned, this taught them four lessons. Here are the four lessons. One, that in order for a guilty sinner to approach a holy God, he needed a suitable covering. Two, that the aprons of fig leaves with their own hands had, had made were not acceptable to him. Three, that God himself must provide the covering. And four, that the necessary covering could only be obtained through death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. So Adam and Eve had, had broken God's command and the justice was, was executed on an animal. And the blood was shed and they were clothed. Either they must die or another must die in their place. And it was pointing forward. To, to the picture of Christ, who closes with his righteousness by his sacrifice on the cross. And so Abel learned from this, and he knew that to be in the presence of God required a shedding of blood so that atonement could be made for his sin. But Cain, however, isn't buying it. 
Cain, in, Levit- in, in Levitical terms, if you looked at Leviticus, he brings a grain sacrifice, which isn't, you don't bring a grain sacrifice, you first bring a burnt offering, and you make atonement for your sin through a blood offering, and then you bring a grain sacrifice. But G- Cain is, is short-circuiting the process. He basically is acknowledging God as creator, but not as redeemer, and so he just wants to come straight to God however he wants and brings a grain offering, and that is rejected. We come to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And by faith, he cleanses our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. My grandmother, I have two grandmothers, and my one grandmother loved this truth. She staked her life on it. My other grandmother read the Bible a lot, and she said she hated the blood the bloodiness of the old covenant. And she rejected this Christ. How about you this morning? What are you, how are you coming? Have you come with a Cain offering this morning or an Abel offering? Have you come to draw near to God as creator and redeemer through the blood of Jesus by faith? Or you come this morning with your worship and you say, I just give him whatever he wants. He's just a creator and he's not that special and he's not my redeemer and I can come how I want to come. You see, the problem is Cain's preach tolerance, tolerance, tolerance. You can come however you want. But what happens when the Abels come to God and they're accepted and they say, this is the only way? Cain's aren't very tolerant, are they? They, they preach tolerance while they're killing you. And Cain rose up and killed him. Are you angry, bitter person this morning? Do you think that you're better than somebody else or that you deserve more because you've lived a better life and you don't want any bleeding charity because you think you're better and that your sacrifice in and of yourself is good enough? You see, what the writer of Hebrews is making clear for us to draw near to God is with confidence we draw near to the throne of grace because we come through a high priest, Jesus, who's passed through the heavens. And we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our, with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. For the law made nothing per- perfect. It made nothing perfect. The law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God, Hebrews 7. And that that is through Jesus, the guarantor of a better covenant. He holds his office of his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us even right now. For since the law is but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continued year after year make perfect those who draw near. You're not going to be made perfect through the blood of animals and goats. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected For all time, those who are being sanctified. Single sacrifice, blood of Jesus. And it's because of this sacrifice of God's Son to make atonement for our sins that we come to God. And now we come up offering everything 
And now we're able to please him because everything that we do is offered through Jesus. He accepts our gifts of worship, our singing, our prayers, our good works, our washing the dishes, and all the little things we do. This is what 1 Peter 2 says, and I'll close with this. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Now, we're all priests. How are we all priests? Well, we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. How are they acceptable to God? Because they're offered through Jesus Christ, and he weeds out all the bad stuff, and it goes through the blood, washed clean, presented to God, you're good to go. And so we come this morning repenting of all Cain worship, all trying to do it any other way, and by faith we come to God recognizing our present need for the blood of Christ, believing that Christ's sacrifice is completely sufficient. You're made complete in him. Find your rest in him. God is pleased when we do that, and he rewards those who seek him. Come to him by faith. Let's pray. Lord, we come running to you. We have no other place that we can run. There's no other stream. There's no other fountain. Nobody can cleanse us. Nobody can make us complete but you, Lord Jesus. So to you alone we give the glory and the honor. We worship you that you are worthy for by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. I pray that that number would increase here at this church. Even now, you'd bring people into the fold. That we wouldn't abandon all trust in, in self and love you and place all hope, confidence to draw near to you. We thank you that we're dearly loved because of what you've done. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.